Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Bob Dole joins us now. Crossmark Global Investment CIO. Bob, let's start here. What time horizon do you have in mind that you can remain constructive on? Six months, 12 months, what is it, Bob? Yeah, it is literally six to 12. I think the near term is a little more treacherous, but we don't have the signs of a recession. Unless we have a recession, it's hard to see a big down move in the market. So I think we're gonna tread water with a lot of volatility in both directions as we sort out what used to be a pattern that was almost all positive. Now it's just a bit more mixed. For example, inflation is not all transitory. I hope everybody finally gets a hold of that one. Yeah, but I love what you have in your note, uh, uh, Bob Dahl, and that is you talk about technology-related disinflation, the advantage we've had from technology. Are you suggesting that's over? Not at all, Tom. I think that will remain a powerful force to keep inflation from getting really out of hand. But when you look at uh, wage rates, uh, that's the most insidious, hard to get out of the picture inflation. And it's very prevalent now. Uh, That on top of just go shopping and you see what the story is, exacerbated by the supply shortage you folks covered just a minute ago. So how important, Bob, is the jobs report that we're gonna get on Friday to you? I think it's very important that the Fed seems um, almost unilaterally focused on the jobs front and kind of pushing inflation to the side, not worrying about it. Uh, I think at some point, as the employment numbers continue to improve, inflation will uh, come front and center for their fight. All right. So the idea of the jobs report, would you say that it's more important than earnings? Because a lot of people are saying that it almost matters less than earnings at a time when the big question mark is not the Fed, which has said it's very dovish, but rather margin pressures and how much they're exacerbated by the supply chain disruptions. Yeah, for the economy, employment's all important, but for, for uh, the markets, it's absolutely about earnings. And as you, as you talked about earlier, there are a lot of question marks about third quarter earnings. For sure, we're getting a deceleration from the unsustainable record second quarter. The question is, uh, will companies be able to sell? What's the supply shortage going to mean? How are they dealing with price pressures? I mean, even in the second quarter reports, you saw a big increase in the number of companies commenting on the pricing uh, problems that they're having, raw materials, et cetera. So lots of cross currents here. My guess is the earnings season will be more mixed. So, Bob, going forward, what is your expectation in terms of what you will change in your portfolio? Because right now you are bullish on stocks, considering the fact that we're not going to get a recession. However, is there some scenario that you see as potentially likely that could change that view? Yeah, so so the mainline story is that cyclicals and value are cheap and have some tailwind relative uh, to to growth and momentum uh, and high P.E. stocks. And if inflation and interest rates creep higher, you know what part of the market uh, struggles with that. That's the high, high PE side. Uh, what would get in the way of that is we saw uh, problems that the economy was slowing more than people thought, uh, that this unbelievable uh, pedal to the metal, both monetary and fiscal policy, is, is not right. having the effect it's been having. 
I, I think that will continue to carry the day. Bob, I would guess you have seen four times OMG margin contraction, margin pressures. We're all going to die at the sort of the income statement. How do you respond to that if you're an investor? So, so I think that uh, those margin issues are for real to, and to be paid attention to, particularly in light of profit margins seem like quarter after quarter have come in better than expected and reached unbelievable heights, all-time highs. That's probably not sustainable in, in the long run, uh, Tom, and therefore, I think a long-term look at earnings has to have a profit margin picture it's a little below where we are today. The worries about these margins into this quarter. Bob, I'd love a playbook from you on what to buy on weakness as this earnings season starts. I think that's got to be the focus right now. If you're on an investor committee and you're thinking about these issues, you're looking around and saying, well, everyone's talking about the same thing right now. Where do I want to fade this story? How do I want to fade this story into earnings season, Bob? How would you like to do that? So into weakness, the first part of your question, I want to own what I think is going to work best over the next six to 12 months. And that is cyclical, value, down cap, international. I think they're the places where the puck is going. So financial stocks, for example, uh, you've seen them as interest rates have crept higher, do a lot better than you might think in the decline we've seen in the market from its highs of just a few weeks ago. So that's the kind of area I want to... Uh, jump onto. I have a lot less valuation risk there than I do in some of the higher PE growth stocks that have done so, so well for, it seems like, forever. Hey, Bob, it's been forever. It's been too long. It always feels like it's too long. It's great to catch up, sir. As always, Bob Dole, Crossmark Global Investments, CIO. What it really is here early October is a linkage of an economic belief into an equity or stock market execution. On the economics, Bruce Kasman joins with J.P. Morgan, their chief economist and head of global economic research. Away from stagflation, uh, Bruce Kasman, what does the J.P. Morgan call on economic growth forward a year? So I think the broad picture is that we continue to get the benefits of vaccinations proving effective of the virus becoming less of an economic factor. Growth rotates away from the U.S. and we see better growth in emerging markets over the next year, but growth is pretty solid. However, mm -hmm. as you were noting, we have a threat right now that growth is decelerating in the US, inflation is moving up. There's some important drags here that we have to be right, we get over with still pretty solid growth over the next uh, few months. I think that all of our listeners and viewers can be confused about a fairly optimistic economic outlook uh, from JP Morgan, but Michael Faroli's potential GDP, which is much lower, buttressed up against your arguably top-of-street optimism on equities from Michael Faroli to Lacos Bugis. I mean, are those two views linked? Well, I think in the near term, the basic point is we still have an enormous amount of slack in the U.S. economy and the global economy. We can grow even with what we still believe is a relatively weak supply side and one that might have gotten hurt by the uh, pandemic. I think the question in the more broad sense and for the equity market is not so much about the pace of growth, but the sustainability of growth. And on that front, we are very optimistic that we're coming into this expansion with healthy balance sheets, supportive policy, um, and that the vaccine still creates an opportunity for a lot of pent-up demand. So potential growth is low. There's a drag that's hitting us now, but there's a good opportunity here for having an expansion that is both sustainable and modestly 
uh, positive in terms of delivering on the Fed's goal of raising inflation. Bruce, how much is your view predicated on supply chain disruptions getting resolved pretty quickly? Um, I don't think we should expect them to get resolved quickly, but I think we're very much dependent on them starting to moderate. Uh, the pressures are a big drag on growth right now. We should we should recognize that. And I think what's key in our forecast is that we see those pressures abate. We see some of the inflation begin to come off here. Purchasing power lifts and goods get moved around the world more easily. But this is going to take a while, probably six to nine months at least before we see them the problems start to really move away from the scene. So this is what I'm really struggling with. Six to nine months, and we're seeing the likes of Nike, of Bed Bath & Beyond uh, fall dramatically after reporting their expectations for slower sales or higher margin pressures due to some of these supply chain disruptions. How can you still be optimistic, not only from an economic perspective, but a corporate health perspective when they're facing these sort of uh, unsold items that cannot be acquired simply because of these disruptions? Well, I think the underlying story is that this is a drag. It's a drag which has continued to get bigger. It's a problem not just for consumer purchasing power in terms of price increases, but for the corporate bottom line, but that there's still this broad story. I mean, we've been downgrading global growth quite sharply in the last few months on a result of this. We still have global growth running close to twice its potential pace in the second half of the year. So part of what's going on here is the pressure that's coming as we're starting to reopen economies. We think that's going to continue. So you have a balance here of pressure on prices, drags from supply chain issues, but still strong global demand. And, you know, the question is, do we have it right that says the U.S. economy is not going to do as well as we might have thought, but can still grow 3 to 4% here over the next year, that the global economy is actually going to do better than that because a lot of these countries will really lag behind right. the U.S. I think, importantly, China has to deliver on getting its growth back on course after having stumbled somewhat in the third quarter. Bruce Kasman, I don't want you to make a tie bot call to four digits. That's not your remit at J.P. Morgan. But I do want you to talk about a broader, strong dollar, resilient dollar, EM fear that is out there. Do we underestimate the resiliency of particularly Asia EM, given your house economic call? Well, I think in Asia, there's two forces at work right now. One is the China story, where there's been a very sharp slowing, policy-driven, and we have to be right that policy is going to calibrate to bring things back up. The other story, which I think is just starting to come into view, is that we are finally seeing vaccination rates up. We're starting to see restrictions come down, and Asia is going to be a pretty decent source of demand here, and I include Japan and I include the emerging markets in Asia as, a, as a part of that story. Uh, in that context, if we get the kind of growth we're looking for in Asia, I think the, even with the Fed moving to tapering, uh, we're not going to see the dollar move materially higher here. To move to Washington, Bruce Kasman, if we see some form of lessening or failure of these two bills by the Democrats in Congress, what does that do to the fiscal impulse to this nation? So... It is important that we are right in terms of our macro views that we get additional fiscal stimulus. And we're looking for something that adds roughly 1% to GDP next year from fiscal support. If we don't get that, that's obviously a drag on growth. And then you put more weight on the tension that we have in the macro picture between significant fading supports from this year's stimulus with the fact that the household sector has built up an enormous amount of excess savings. It hasn't spent the stimulus that came 
in 20 and 21. And to think about how much of that actually is a cushion. I wouldn't want to depend on that in my macro forecast. We are looking for this additional stimulus, but certainly that would be needed if we're going to continue to grow at the pace we're expecting if we don't get that stimulus. Bruce, you've been doing this for decades. You've been in this industry. You see the amount of uncertainty that is here among your colleagues. You even talk about the range of possible outcomes for a whole host of different areas, whether it's the policy response in China, the policy response down in Washington, D.C. with respect to spending, whether we see supply chain disruptions uh, abate. Have you ever seen this amount of uncertainty in your economic forecasts? For sure. I mean, I think one thing we should remember is there's a difference between being in unprecedented times, which this is really unprecedented, and the degree of uncertainty. I don't see a particularly significant risk of a recession in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. I think the global economy is on reasonably good footing. I think there's enormous range of outcomes we can talk about on inflation uh, in terms of growth. Uh, but I don't think this is a, a particularly scary time in terms of macroeconomics. And uh, I do think that one reason we always see a lot of uncertainty going forward is because everything that has happened in the past has actually happened. So do you think that traders are using economic projections correctly when they start saying they keep getting it wrong? How can we trust them? And they start looking at the granularities rather than the overarching point that you just made. We're not going to have a recession in the near term. Well, one thing we can be sure is my economic forecast is going to be wrong. I mean, that's just the nature of Can we banner that right now? Casman <laughs> will be wrong. But I, I don't actually see when I look at the way financial markets are pricing an enormous amount of uncertainty relative to normal times. Risk premium in bond markets, risk premium in equity markets are not unduly high here. Um, I do think there is a lot of uncertainty. The range of outcomes is wide, and we've gotten certainly more focused on the possibility for disappointments on growth going into the fourth quarter. But again, I think we're still well balanced here for a solid recovery. Uh, whether we get the recovery we want, whether we control inflation, these are all important questions. What policymakers deliver or not are big questions, but I don't think we're in an unusually large range of uncertainty relative to uh, a number of periods in the past where you know, we were at the brink of recession, financial crisis, other things that could have hit us. We had enormous uncertainty early last year when the pandemic first hit. That was far more uh, hard to, to figure out than where we are right now. Hey, Bruce, great to catch up. Fantastic, as always, to hear from you. I Bruce Kasman there, Kassman, JP Morgan, we'll Chief Economist and Head of Global Economic <laughs> Research. This is a joy talk of the moment in Washington and also the larger picture as well. Wendy Schiller is at Brown University. She's director of the Taubman Center of American Politics and Policy. She also has the most readable 704-page textbook treatment on America in a democracy under threat. John, I can't convey to you the importance of Gateways to Democracy as an instructing guide for so many Americans. Let's get some instructions right now. Tom, with Wendy. Wendy, great to catch up with you. We keep talking about these numbers, 1.5, 3.5. Bernie Sanders talking about something north of that. Senator Sanders looking for 6, 7, 3.5 at a minimum. Wendy, how many people in America right now do you think know what's in this offering of 3.5 that's on the table? Uh, Jonathan, as close to zero people in America know what's in this bill. It's been, I think, political malpractice and strategically you know, ill-advised for the Democrats to keep talking about the number and fighting about the number and not talking about what's in it for most Americans, especially since they're talking about a tax hike 
on what they call upper income voters, many of whom live in the suburbs that voted for the Democrats in 2018 and voted for the Democrats, at least, you know, in some part in 2020. So if you're going to go back in 2022 and said reelect us again, but we're going to raise your taxes. And in fact, we're spending it on stuff, but we can't even identify simply in 30 seconds or less. That is a very bad political calculation, which is stunning given the experience you've got between Pelosi, Schumer and Biden. You clearly uh, just, think the approach is on, bad. Oh, Can we talk about whose fault me? this is right now, Wendy? Who is at fault? I named a couple of names there. Who's at fault at the moment for that? Uh, well, I, I think the people I just named, I certainly think President Biden should have been talking about what's in this reconciliation package, not just the reconciliation package. Certainly Schumer. And it's interesting. Schumer's walking into a tight line because he's up for re-election in 2022. And you never know. New York politics is changing rapidly. Uh, you know, he looks in good shape. He's going to raise a lot of money, but you never know. So I think that's a lot of pressure on him not to sort of throw out uh, all the progressive initiatives. But listen, you are doing features on you know investments in companies that are going to make electric cars, for example. That infrastructure bill, either reconciliation or the infrastructure bill, we're not quite sure, has some money in it for, for public charging stations, for example, for electric cars. Where are people going to charge their cars and what are they going to pay for that electricity? Nobody knows. But if you're talking about going green and you're talking about electric cars for GM, then the government's saying, hey, we're going to provide a free charging station for you. That's something Americans can digest. It's something they think, oh, I drive to work, particularly in those districts that are competitive in the suburbs. And now I can drive an electric car and not worry about charging it. Wendy. There, simple. I did that in less than 10 seconds. Is the debate. Why the Democrats can't do that, it's a mystery. Well, and, and this really is the question. Down in Washington, D.C., is this the debate over these details? Or is it this larger philosophical point of a headline number and a view forward for the Democratic Party as the new, uh, the new party of a new deal? I think I think that's been lost thus far. I think it got you know, they did a lot of good things in the COVID relief package. They got a lot of people vaccinated. They did another stimulus check. The economy seems to rebound. Now the stock market and debt ceiling gets a little complicated this time of year. Of course, we expect the Republicans ultimately, as they always do, will go along with the debt ceiling or allow the Democrats to raise it. It'll just be brinkmanship for a while and that'll rattle people a little bit. But if you're a suburban voter who likes the Democratic Party and you're finding your 401k is going down this month, that they're fighting about numbers and that you don't know what's in it for you, but a, a potential tax cut, uh, tax increase is on the horizon, you're getting uncomfortable. Well, and this is not the right time for Democrats to have people get uncomfortable with their agenda. Wendy, if they are committing political malpractice in not messaging this correctly, are they on the brink of political malpractice when it comes to the debt ceiling, when it comes to the idea of allowing uh, the United States to accidentally default simply because they can't get the timing right? Well, I don't think they're going to let that happen. I think they're going to do whatever they can to make sure that that happens. And I think there's enough support for Republicans, for example, particularly going into 2022 uh, among Wall Street, among corporations, among businesses who don't like instability, that the pressure will be fairly significant on the Republicans not to get in the way. But they're just going to watch the Democrats fumble until the very last minute and then come aboard. That's what I think is going to happen. But Americans don't like the idea of raising taxes, spending lots of money and having a skyrocketing debt or deficit, even if they don't quite understand the relationship, right. they know that they don't want that to be our, mm. our constant situation. Wendy, I want to go to your academics, and I want to dovetail into Greg Grandin at Yale's great work. Yale's a school down the coast, Wendy, if you're not aware <laughs> of that. And I want to talk about the threat of democracy that's out there in the zeitgeist and the new Jacksonian American with former President Trump, 
or if he doesn't run with the new Republicans, what is the flavor of our new Jacksonian America for our democracy? Tom, that's a great question, but there's an inherent contradiction there because what Andrew Jackson did that was so brilliant was expand the suffrage, expand the electorate. He pushed state legislatures to allow more people to vote. He got state legislators invested in the idea of state-based parties, political parties, and sending the nomination process out to the nation, making it more national because the elites in Washington had blocked him. So that's expanding the suffrage, expanding the vote, having more people participate. The Republican response, I'm not sure I'd call it a Trump response because he's out of office, but the Republican response now is to limit the suffrage, to try to make it harder to vote, to try to limit the number of people who can vote. That's not Andrew Jackson. He didn't see it that way. He said, get everybody in there and then persuade them that you're the guy. So I think that Trump will ride the coattails of what the Republicans are doing to some extent. But his motto and what he did in 2016 was bring more people who had not voted or hadn't voted recently into the electorate. And that's the Jackson model. Wendy, thank you. It's been too long. Come back soon. Wendy Schiller there of Brown University. Right now, for Lisa Bramitz and I, it's a great joy on radio and television to bring in Candace Browning. Yes, she's head of global research uh, at uh, Bank of America, but very much like Tobias Lefkovich of Citigroup, her strength is she started out in the trenches. If you are 17 years in a row, the airline analyst of the world, and if you do securities anal analyst analysis, I should say, like Candace Browning did years ago, that is a research foundation. And we're thrilled she could join us uh, today. Candace, you have a new report out that's on Bitcoin. I don't even know, Candace. Did, did Brian Moynihan let you put the doge in your crypto report? Well, thank you, Tom, so much for having me on the show today. Actually, what we're doing today is not really uh, so much about Bitcoin. Bitcoin's just a part of it. What we did today is we are the first major bank uh, on the sell side to launch a uh, strategist, and his job is to be the crypto and digital asset lucky strategist. You. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, and lucky him. Uh, so the reason we did it is because it's such a huge growing market. So if you look at it today, digital assets are about $2 trillion. Bitcoin is about $900 billion of the $2 trillion. So it's big. And there's a ton of investor interest in the space. It's growing. So if you look at the number of participants, you know, last year there were about 66 million people participating in this market. Today it's over 220 million people who are participating. And if you look at the number of um, corporates mentioning crypto on their earnings calls, that's gone from about 17 last year to about 147 in the most recent quarter. So it's really going kind of mainstream and people are getting interested in it. Yeah. Which brings us to the last reason, Tom, why we decided to launch this. And that's really, and this is the most important word, I think, is ecosystem. You know, this isn't just Bitcoin anymore. This is digital assets. And it's creating a whole ecosystem of new companies and new opportunities and new applications. And you can see that in the fact that venture capital, which invested about $5.5 billion into digital assets last year, year-to-date has already invested 
17 billion. So this is growing and it's mainstream and it's not just Bitcoin. You have a great perspective, Candace, because you deal with both retail and corporate clients and institutional investors. How much is the interest being driven by retail investors versus the institutional players? You know, that's a great question, Lisa, because there is an, obviously an enormous amount of retail interest in this space. People want to learn about it uh, in our retail system. But there's a huge growing institutional um, interest in this, in this space um, as well. And so we're launching this for all of our customers. And really, you know, we're launching it more, as I said, about the ecosystem and more to learn about this really potentially revolutionary technology. And that's why we put a former tech analyst in this spot. The analyst, Al Shaw, has over 20 years experience as a tech analyst. And I really think this is about, you know, whether we want to call it Internet 2.0 or whatever we want to call it, it's all about this revolutionary new technology and its possibilities. Well, but Candace, this is actually super important, the idea of digital assets not necessarily being a sort of asset class, like commodity, is it a currency, or is this an issue of transmitting money beyond the borders, basically removing some of the frictions that have traditionally been there. Which do you see as the primal driver of the research here and frankly of institutional interest? Yeah, you know, it's it's a great question. And I do think that over time, this can become its own asset class. Um, and I think its own sector, just like the internet. And the point is, with this new revolutionary technology, you can really address a lot of the issues that you brought up. You can bank the 1.7 billion dollar, mm -hmm. 1.7 billion people who are currently unbanked. You can do that with much less friction. You can create um, assets such as NFTs that you can sell that will have well, royalties associated with them without yeah. lawyers. Candace, so just, those are just examples of like all different kinds of things you can do with okay, this new Candace, technology. And yes, it can also be money. It can be. But it can be so many other okay. things as well, and Candace, that's really the point. We're almost out of time. I want to go to Raphael Auer at the Bank of International Settlements in Geneva, who's got absolutely pristine research on the foundations of Bitcoin, the foundations of digital currency, the foundations of crypto. And I want to fold it over to where your tech analyst is going to have to look at the regulation in what you call the Wild West of crypto. I mean, what, what yeah. do you do with Gary Gensler and the rest when the police show up to say enough? <laughs> well, you've put your finger on something that I think is one of the greatest risks to crypto, and you've already seen, you know, China and India outlaw uh, Bitcoin trading. But on the other hand, you know, Gary Gensler has also said that he sees this revolutionary new technology as offering a ton of wonderful opportunities. And, you know, the Fed is studying um, central bank digital currencies. So, yes, regulation is a huge potential risk in this space. But you could also argue that once there's a regulatory roadmap in place, mm -hmm. it will offer enormous opportunities as people conform to that. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Candace Browning, congratulations on driving forward the discussion on crypto with the Bank of America, of course, America, and of course, their head of global research.
This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.